Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The District, a podcast by the Spectator World about politics and culture. I'm Amber Athey, The Spectator's Washington editor, and I'm joined by Ollie Wiseman, author of The DC Diary and deputy editor, and Stephen Miller, columnist for The Spectator. The jury is currently out on deliberations in the trial of Wisconsin versus Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, Rittenhouse is charged with murder for the killing of two individuals and injuring one individual during the riots last summer. The defense, of course, is arguing that this was done in self-defense because he was being chased by the first individual, Joseph Rosenbaum, before he killed him. The second individual who was killed tried to attack Kyle Rittenhouse with a skateboard. And the third actually pointed a loaded handgun at his head before Rittenhouse shot him in the bicep. So everyone is sort of eagerly awaiting the verdict in this case. I think it has huge implications for both the Second Amendment and just the basic right to self-defense in our country. But one of the most disturbing aspects of the trial has been the media coverage and really just the dishonesty with which they've approached this case. I think one of the biggest narratives that's been debunked is this idea that he carried his firearm across state lines. This has been like the the last big talking point from the get-go, trying to prove that Kyle Rittenhouse had malicious intent by even going to Kenosha in the first place. Um, And also that he was allegedly in possession of this firearm illegally, which the judge has now dismissed, I believe, every every gun charge, every lesser gun charge that was against Rittenhouse. And and I just wonder, you know, when you have a a jury in in a case that's this big and has received so much coverage, is it possible to even have sort of a neutral deliberation on on this type of verdict? Um. I think it depends. One of the problems is the jury, I don't believe, was sequestered. So, and I do think media outlets took advantage of this. CNN certainly took advantage of it. We had prosecution star witness Gage Goskowitz or whatever this guy's name is. I'm sorry, I haven't taken the time to learn it. I don't care. Where he gave testimony on the stand, which pretty much was the seminal moment of the trial, which was you pointed your gun at him. Yes, sir, I did. And that's the moment where you got the prosecutor with his head in his hands, like, you know, there goes the case. And that very morning, the next morning, he's on Good Morning America with Michael Strahan, essentially giving a different story. He's, he's saying, no, my hands were up. I was not. I was in a defensive position. I was fearing for my life. So he got advice from someone from, you know, the 12 hours that he walked off the stand when he appeared on uh, Good Morning America. That night, he appears on Anderson Cooper, says the same thing. His lawyer is with him. And these media outlets know what they're doing. They know that probably more people are paying attention, although it's debatable with CNN, to what Anderson Cooper has on his show and Good Morning America than who are paying attention during the daytime to a PBS trial. So they know what they're doing. They know that they're essentially externally perhaps trying to influence jury members who may be talking to their families. They might be texting. They might be watching. Who knows? And that's all it takes. And it's this goes beyond being irresponsible. This is an agenda. This is something that's purposefully happening where Cooper doesn't question him. And Michael Strahan, who's a, you know, not exactly, you know, Mike Wallace here, they're not questioning him saying, you know, why, why are you, why are you offering discrepancies to your testimony? This is what you testified to. So why are you now saying this? They just sat along and kind of nodded their heads. They have the outcome they want. They have everything mapped out inside of their head about who Kyle Rittenhouse was, why he was there, 
what happened, why these were his victims. And now you have this kind of rehab tour going on with this guy who I would argue that, you know, there's criminal, there's unsavory criminal histories with these victims. I would argue that's noteworthy. I wouldn't argue, I wouldn't argue it's relevant to their shooting deaths or their, you know, why they were shot. It could certainly explain why one was in illegal possession of a firearm. The other is shouting racial expletives and has a history. And then the other guy is trying to brain Rittenhouse with a skateboard. That can certainly explain the character of why they're there. But I don't believe that's directly correlated to the circumstances of why they were shot. And so to kind of wrap up my thoughts and I'll let someone else jump in, they, they know what they're doing here. They, they are essentially trying to influence a jury, influence a trial to get the outcome that they themselves believe is just and that they already have in their heads. And you know, we talk about reckonings and we talk about things for the Steele dossier and they're not going to learn anything until, you know, these guys are sued for very, very large amounts of money. Yeah, I think that's the crucial distinction, isn't it? It's the distinction between kind of honest mistakes, uh, which everyone makes, and kind of narrative-driven mistakes, shall we say. Um, and I think if you look at Rittenhouse or, or a series of other stories in the last couple of years, we'll talk a bit about Steele later, you know, that the mistakes are consistently in one direction. They are consistently to um, kind of feed a uh, kind of uh, caricature of, of America um, that... Um, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, and others has kind of decided is is true about the country. I think on on that point uh, with the Rittenhouse trial, it's interesting to see. You know, the, Stephen, you, you you pointed out the crucial moment, which was the uh, the, uh, the 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 cross examination where I, I believe it was where we got the the detail of the gun being pointed at um, Rittenhouse. And you know, this is not like. Oh, this is like not just come to light like a, as if by magic, right? Like I, I think I'm right in thinking that you know these news organizations had all the, the same footage that that we've we've had all along, and um, you know basically there was selective editing of of what was going on, which was footage. Sorry to jump in, which was footage by I don't want to say conservative outlets, but was Washington Examiner videographer was on the ground, and a Daily Caller videographer was on the ground, and without them who knows where we're at today? Who knows what's happening? And that's not even being acknowledged. Um, it's acknowledged somewhat in the New York Times reconstruction, but that's it. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no. So it's just really to say that there's a failing uh, on two levels, right? One is to say, one is the kind of certainty with which these organizations proceeded to kind of um, impose a very simple story on a quite messy, complicated series of events, as far as I can tell. So that's kind of lack of humility kind of level event uh, level kind of mistake. And then the sort of second, more, more more arguably more sinister kind of mistake is this one you talk about, Stephen, which is the, the kind of deliberate nature of um, the way in which, um, whether it's on TV or, or in the press, the, these things get, just, these events get described. And, you know, important details are, you know, I don't think you can say anything other than deliberately left out. Like, I don't think that's, you know, a crazy thing to suggest. Uh, one of the other really disturbing aspects of the media coverage of this case to me has been not just the attacks on Kyle Rittenhouse, but also the attacks on the judge himself. Um, judge Schroeder is his name. And there's been so much coverage over the fact that he's a guy who loves America. Like apparently that's supposed to make him incapable of, of overseeing this trial. They've focused on the fact that his ringtone is the song, God bless the USA, which they, the media is very helpfully pointing out was sometimes played at Trump rallies. And so they're claiming that this is Trump's anthem, even though it's just a patriotic song that's been around since forever. And then they uh, were really hung up about the fact that he 
uh, wanted to clap for veterans on Veterans Day. So it's like simple patriotism now makes you this like hard right conservative and you're therefore no longer allowed to be an unbiased or impartial judge over a murder trial. I mean, it's absolutely absurd. But I think what they're doing there is they're kind of setting the stage for um, for blame if the verdict isn't returned the way they want it to be. If Rittenhouse is found innocent by the jury, they're going to blame the way the judge sat over the trial or perhaps even worse. There's been speculation that the prosecution was attempting to go for a mistrial intentionally with some of the statements that Thomas Finger was making, particularly attacking Rittenhouse's right to self uh, to avoid self-incrimination, his right to stay silent on the, on the case and um, he was really admonished by Judge Schroeder for that. Um, but if the judge is, he can still rule a mistrial after the verdict is returned. Um, and he could declare a mistrial with prejudice, which would mean he believes that the prosecutorial misconduct was intentional and the prosecution then can't retry Kyle Rittenhouse. If that were to happen, then again, you have all of this media coverage of the judge being this sort of biased political actor. And so they're going to question any um, outcome that is in favor of Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, they're, they're already setting the stage for that. Yeah, I would agree with that. It, you notice that after the moment where the prosecutor put his head in his hands, all of the media attention um, almost immediately shifted over to the judge. And we got these <laughs> these kind of de breathless declarations of his uh, Asian food stuck on a boat right. <laughs> uh, comment. I, I wouldn't say like that's something – I mean I guess if I'm a judge, I would be pretty professional and not even quip and things like that. But this guy has been on the bench since the early 80s. And it, it, you're, you talked about their prejudices of his ringtone. He wore an American flag tie on Veterans Day. He has veterans to stand up. And you said, you know, it, it must be it must be a, a racist conservative thing to be patriotic. Well, yes, <laughs> they've, been saying, <laughs> they've been saying this now since, you know, the publishing of the 1619 Project that, yeah, I mean, you have the Betsy Ross flag controversy for Nike and, Ka and Kaepernick. And yeah, that's exactly what they're saying. And you need to you need to start coming out and saying that. Um, and of course, this all kind of culminated, culminated, pardon me, in this gasp from the reporters when he said, you know, I hope this, the, the Asian food isn't stuck on a boat off the coast of Long Beach. And <gasps> you had that. But then you had Julian Rosas from the Examiner say, I was in the press room and there was maybe a couple of people that did that. It wasn't like a uniform. And that's that's what you need. You need to have somebody who's there who is not going along with the herd of journalists who are offended at something that they don't even know what they're offended and this was a kind of a two-day freakout on social media and Twitter, especially as a platform, lends itself to this kind of uh, knee-jerk outrage where someone will tweet this out or they'll say it and a reporter will say it. And then, of course, Blue Check Twitter latches onto it and none of them will sit down with you and go to me and I go, why do you think that's offensive? Why, why, what is offensive about what he just said? It, he just said the word Asian? Is that where we're at now? Where you know a, a older white Caucasian guy, I guess, can't say ethnicities at all, and that's where we're being offended. So no, they can't tell you what was offensive by that. And this is all just again more performative outrage to just kind of tick that scale 
in the direction that they want. And if they can get this trending, or if they can get as many of them as possible going, <laughs> you know, like that, that they believe is enough to sway what is public sentiment. And you're right that if they can't attack Rittenhouse, which they did with his quote unquote crocodile tears, then they're going to go and they're going to go after any aspect that looks like something is not going in their favor. And, and in doing so, not only are they going to do that, they're going to attach a racial narrative to these things. And I've spoken with this with several people where every literally everything that we see today coming from corporate media or I want to say the left has a racial narrative attached to it. And I, I'm asking, is it just because it was this because it started with Obama and they just aren't able to let go of it? And they're trying to, you know, they're trying to assign race to a, you know, 135 year old Joe Biden. Um, they, they don't know what to do when they don't have, you know, a totem or an avatar in there. Um, as you know, I wrote about the constant need to attach race to the Rittenhouse trial. And why are they doing this while mostly ignoring the racial elements of what happened in the Ar Ahmed Arbery case? And I think it, it just it comes down to this. They don't know how to argue anything else. They've been doing it for so long. And um, as you saw from the behind the scenes letter of the New York Times staff meeting where the junior staffers essentially told Dean Beckway that race is everything. Everything has to be framed around this. And we, we saw NPR this morning. The first person of color is an Asian American woman elected to the mayor of the city of Boston. And NPR is coming out with yeah, but we had three three black candidates they could have chosen from, and they kind of do it in passive voice. And so, the, attaching race to the attaching race to the judge, his ringtone, his quip about the lunch, his tie, all of this is meant to kind of keep stoking this narrative that what happened in the Rittenhouse trial was about race when it really wasn't. You can argue the reason everyone was there was about race, but then you have to get down to media were the ones that stoked the shooting of Jacob Blake before there were any facts known about that case, before we knew about the restraining order, before we knew about the attempted kidnapping of the kids, before we knew about his history of sexual assault. And so they just got it out there and they were like, nope, there's another shooting of a, of a African-American in Kenosha now, right next to Minneapolis, and we all have to go riot. And that's what brought all of these people together. And that is the only racial aspect of this trial, but they're trying so hard to do it to the point to where if it wasn't so dangerous, it would almost be laughable. Stephen, you mentioned the um, the kind of this thing about crocodile tears that there's the, some people sort of, I guess, left wingers sort of claiming that Rittenhouse is sort of hamming it up and sort of pretending to be upset. Yeah, the majority of people, the majority of people who said that, I don't think watched the trial. He was describing the moment that he had to shoot Rosenbaum. Right. And I, I mean, I think that uh, there was an excellent piece by uh, Michael Brendan Doherty in uh, National Review. I hate to, you know, shout out the competition, but on, on this, making this point about specifically about the crocodile's tears, crocodile tears thing and kind of saying, which I think is important to remember here, that, you know, it's a great example of just how removed from, you know, we're talking here about a, a human, real human story involving messy events on a, on a street in America, right? um and tragic events on the street in america and and yet um the kind of conversation about it has to be so kind of far removed it becomes this sort of ridiculous political opera right where there's 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 no sort of moral complexity or anything it's just goodies and baddies and 
it's it's really quite something to 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 witness the inability to like even if you think he was guilty right to think that he must be some sinister actor deliberately crying for example i mean it's 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 crazy when you when you take a step back to to sort of be that like lost in the discourse to actually appreciate the kind of messiness of, of, of all of this. And these are the same people that are always talking about how men need to show their emotions more and, um, you know, men don't cry enough. And then so long as it's a white man crying who doesn't fit their per- political persuasion, then they're supposed to be fake crying. I mean, the whole thing is absolutely ridiculous. And I want to go back to a second for what Stephen was saying about the way media uses race and not just in this trial, but in, in most of their arguments against um, conservatives or really just anything that runs against um, their preferred ideology. And I actually think it's a little bit more sinister than just they don't know how to argue anything else. Um, I think it's intentional because they know that in 2021, being a racist, being labeled a racist is the worst thing imaginable. Like there's no greater insult you can call someone than a racist. And I think they're injecting race into this and other stories because they want to prevent normal people who look at this and see it for what it is from publicly defending people like Rittenhouse um, or publicly defending Republicans or conservatives when they do something in Congress or whatever story of the day um, is going on. They're trying to make it so toxic that the only people who are willing to put their neck on the line are people who are already so embroiled in politics that it's hard for them to change minds anyway. Um, so I feel like it's it's very intentional what they're doing, and it's because um, they have created this sort of, I mean, i kind of sick of the term cancel culture, but that's really what it is. They've created this cancel culture, and they've made race the, the quickest way to be canceled is if you're racially insensitive. And that turns so many people off of being willing to put their attach their name to defending Rittenhouse and others because they don't want to be labeled racist too. I would t- I would take issue with a couple of things. You say like in 2021, being labeled a racist is the worst thing. I, I would argue it's probably worse six years ago. I think now there is a, there is an element of just numbness to it where that's it's just fair. Like, There's definitely pushback. You now. Guys, and here and here's where and here's where I'll make that argument. It's one thing, say me as a you know a white Caucasian male who, like you notice, is, is I'm in the fight. I'm mucking it up. Um, I'm writing about these topics and stuff like that, and I'm attacked that way. And, and sometimes even my dop- my my namesake doppelganger is attacked that way. And so I'm even confused for being a racist um, to the point where you just I, I kind of write it off. Um, the pro- the problem is, and you look at the election of Glenn Youngkin in Virginia is kind of the uh, is kind of the canary in the coal mine for this argument, which is it, it went from you know people calling Donald Trump a racist, um, which eh, he's kind of boomer racist. He's not Klan racist. He's just kind of like why are those Hispanics hanging out on the corner of Home Depot racist? You know, he's boomer racist. He's you know, um, but then it got to pundits on the right are racist, and then it's Tucker Carlson's a racist, and then it just got to if you are on Twitter and you and Glenn Greenwald is saying something defending something, he's now a racist. And this has just gone down and down and down and down and down to now parents of kids are racist at school boards. And oh, by the way, your 12 year old is inherently racist. They, they're just, they don't know that they're racist and we're going to tell them this. And so when, when you kind of say like, 
that's why I kind of think they, they just literally don't know how to argue anything else to the point to where they've run out of targets to where they are literally pointing at grade school kids and say, and throwing an Ibram Kendi book at their head and saying, you're going to read this, you know? And that's where I kind of think this is where the, the worms turned a little bit on this is that's a lot to do with the Glenn Youngkin election when they said that this was automatic white supremacy, like just right there. Glenn Youngkin's a white supremacist, and you just go, wait, what? Like, I mean, that kind of works with a few of these far-right fringe candidates. It doesn't really work with, like, Mitt Romney in a sweater vest, okay? And then the, the, the electoral data came out, and we found out that he flipped Hispanics, and he, and he picked up a large chunk of the African-American vote, because guess what? They also have kids in school. <laughs> and that's kind of where it comes down to. So I would argue that there, there is, I think, this level of numbness where normal parents, independents, and just parents who, with kids are like, I'm fine if you want to call Stephen L. Miller from The Spectator a racist. Eh, you know, he doesn't look right. So sure, call him. And then when they come after them, they're like, uh, uh, what do you mean? I'm not a racist. And it's like, it just, it goes, excuse me, like right down the line. And I think they've hit that wall where now you're just accusing parents with kids in school as racist. And that's where they go, oh, okay, Glenn Youngkin. There's your vote. Um, I, I don't know how that affects the Rittenhouse trial or the verdict or anything of that nature. And I, I, I largely suspect most of that fight, depending on whatever happens with that verdict, is going to happen online. It's going to happen in social media. I don't know how much of that affects, say, the parents with kids in school who are like, what are you reading exactly? <laughs> so, I mean, that's just kind of my thought. I just think we're at a – I think we're at that inflection point where I think people are probably getting numb to it. And certainly when they are flooded with it everywhere, where they're trying to attach race to stories where it's just not a prevalent circumstance in the story. Yeah, I think you're right that the left has really overplayed their hand um, in a very significant way by the way that they've attached that term to to, to certain stories and to certain people. Um, I, I'm very interested to see how, how this... Um, deliberation turns out, which which way the, the jury returns on Rittenhouse. I think regardless, there's going to be probably a, a huge social media fight, as you mentioned, Stephen. And unfortunately, they're already preparing for more violence in downtown Kenosha. Hopefully this time they'll at least be prepared for it. Yeah. I mean, if they had activated the National Guard when this all happened, we probably wouldn't be here um, with this. But that, that that's neither here nor there. Um, I mean, if you, if you looked at the Times where they, the media is almost like ask, and I hate this, this is kind of a cliche where it's kind of like the media is asking for riots. They want more riot and, and things like this. And I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the case here, because as we've seen with some of these situations, they just don't materialize. We saw this with the, um, the, the last rally that was supposed to happen at the Capitol, where there was supposedly this big rally, they put all the fencing up and then like four guys and six feds undercover showed up. And so I don't know if that is going to be the outcome, but they're certainly trying to push for that. And again, nobody, they know they're in a position where no one can step in their way and go, hold on, why is this racist over here? And we're at the point to where the only explanation they can come up with is they have to kind of fashion an imaginary shooter in their head who is African-American. They kind of create a whole narrative in their head where if, if Kyle Rittenhouse was an African-American, he would have been shot dead in the street. Kind of thing. And it's kind of like, uh, this is always kind of when Barack Obama used to talk about his son, you know, his imaginary son, 
which is, you know, if I had a son, he'd be Trayvon Martin. If I had a son, he would be on the south side of Chicago. Well, no, if you had a son, he would be attending uh, the private school in Washington, D.C. He'd be getting the very best education in the country. <laughs> and so there, because the, the, the facts that have come out about Rittenhouse that they haven't been able to kind of square – um, they've had to create an imaginary African-American black Kyle Rittenhouse where they've they've literally f- created a fictional story that goes beat for beat how they want it to go, which is he went in and he shot a bunch of people and the cops shot him dead. And they have to do that because the facts of the Rittenhouse case do not fit the narrative of what we're seeing unfold in a courtroom and on, and on video. And I don't understand what's so controversial about looking at a video and going like, yeah, he's getting hit with a skateboard. And then you have the prosecutor who's like, well, his gun was bigger than the skateboard. And that was, you know, a fair fight is roadhouse. And I'm just looking at this and I want to boil my head. Uh, because I can't believe that these are logical arguments. And if you're making these kinds of arguments, it probably means you shouldn't have brought murder charges against him. So I, I don't know how the verdict's going to go. It's a it's a jury trial, and anything can happen with those. Um, and we we know that the, the media is trying to ferment this racial attitude to go and burn Kadosha to the street to the ground again, um, which again only affects the small businesses in that community. And then they pack their cameras up and they leave, and that's kind of what happened in Ferguson. So. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I honestly, I don't have a prediction what's going to happen in any of this, but we certainly can see what they're trying to do with this. Well, Stephen uh, and Amber, we will, uh, have to wait and see, um, what happens with the trial and what happens in Kenosha, but we, um, will be back uh, later this week and I'm sure talking about it again soon. So, um, thanks again, Stephen, for coming on and thanks. Nice to talk to you, Amber. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.